0: Thank you for downloading this podcast of The Sunday Sermon. The Sunday Sermon podcast is a ministry of the Westerville Free Will Baptist Church located in Westerville, Ohio. And my name is Paul Ederling, and I am the pastor of the Westerville Church. And I would like to invite you to find out more about our church by visiting www.westervillechurch.org. And then also, if you would just take a moment, uh, wherever you download your podcast, to rate and comment on our podcast, that will help us to be more easily discovered um, in the podcast world. And now, let's join the message. We began last week talking about matters of the heart, issues of the heart. And when we think about the heart, the place that we have to run to, Is the sufficiency of the scriptures. If we do not put proper priority on the sufficiency of the scriptures in our lives, then we are undermining what God wants to do in us and through us. And as I told you last week, every issue in life that we face, to some degree, there is an aspect of the heart that is involved. Matter of fact, what we saw last week in the Old Testament was that the heart is the seat of the interpersonal life. It's where our intellect resides. Our ability to reason things out. It's where our emotion resides. Our ability to react to the circumstances of life. And it is in the heart where our volition resides, and that is our ability to respond to the circumstances of life. As a result of that, when those three aspects of our mind is working together, there are attitudes that are developed, there are desires that are developed that drive us. What you find in the New Testament is that when it comes to the heart, the same things are said. Matter of fact, you will note that in the New Testament, that 15 different cases can be pointed to in the New Testament in which the heart denotes our inner personal life or our personality. Who we are is a result of who we are inwardly. We also find that in the New Testament, there are 13 times that the heart is the seat of emotional state of consciousness. As I already mentioned to you, there are intellectual activities that go on in our heart because our heart really is the working of our minds. And even in the New Testament, 11 different cases can be pointed to that we have intellectual abilities. And 13 times, volition that is, our will, our ability to choose. And let me just take you through, I'm not going to give you a whole list of all these 52 scriptures or these 52 cases, but let me just give you a sampling for a moment so that you can see what the New Testament says about the heart. The secrets of the heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Notice the emphasis there on the secrets of his heart. Have you ever had a secret in your heart? Many of us have. Not only are there secrets in the heart, but there is sorrow. So much so that Paul would say to the Romans that there's an unceasing anguish in my heart. Because it's the seed of sorrow. It's the seed of where anguish is processed and and felt. It is in the heart that we find our volition, our will. And because of the sinfulness of the heart, there is futile thinking that takes place in our hearts and in our minds. And in Romans 1, Paul points to that and reminds us that it's because of that type of thinking that their hearts were darkened. As a matter of fact, Romans 1 says that They were led by their hearts, in essence, to worship the creation rather than the creator. We find that Paul, again, in the book of Romans, reminds us that our hearts can be hard and impenitent. That means they can be hard and rebellious and unrepentant. And so sometimes in the issues of life that we face, we have to discern, we have to let the Word of God help us discern whether or not we're allowing our hearts to become hard and rebellious and unrepentant. The reason that I start with the sufficiency of scriptures last week and today is because we also believe that our hearts can be influenced from outside sources. God gave us His Word for a reason. And as we saw last week in Psalm 19, God gave us His Word to reveal Himself to us and to reveal us to to ourselves so that we could understand how holy He is and how unholy we are. So this morning, I want us to look at Hebrews 4. This may not be a passage that you would Uh, Initially, think about in terms of the sufficiency of Scripture, but I want us to see what is said here, and we're only going to read three verses, four verses, beginning in verse 11, at the end of chapter 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must account. If I can set the context for you for just a moment, you'll notice that in verse 11, the writer of Hebrews is saying to these people that we are to strive to enter in to the rest. So we have to think about what does that mean? Well the context of this passage actually starts in Hebrews chapter 3 and if you read through Hebrews 3 into chapter 4 what you find is that the writer of Hebrews is addressing a time in Israel when Moses was leading a generation of people that never made it to the promised land. They wandered in the wilderness and as they wandered in the wilderness their hearts became disobedient and their hearts did not glorify and worship God the way that they should have and as a result there's a whole generation under the leadership of Moses that never entered into the promised land and in this context of chapter 3 and 4 the promised land is the representation of the rest that God had for his people. And the sad commentary upon God's people under the leadership of Moses was that they, because of their unbelief, because of their rebellion and their hard-heartedness, they never entered into the rest that God had for them because they never entered into the promised land. But there's another person in chapters 3 and 4 that's mentioned here, and that's another generation, and that's the generation of Joshua. But can I remind you, that even when that generation entered in to the promised land, there were times of rebellion. There were times of unbelief. There were times of not taking God at his word for them. And so even though they had entered into the promised land, they still had moments in which there was no rest for them. And when you think about the generation of Moses and you think about the generation of Joshua, the one thing they both had in common was unbelief, a lack of faith. They did not believe God for what God had promised. They did not believe God for what God had said to them. And so having gone through that in chapters 3 and 4, the writer of Hebrews then brings us to verse 11 with a transitional word, therefore. The people that he's speaking to who are followers of Christ, that he's writing to the church, the, the letter of Hebrews is written to the church, he's writing to the church and he's saying to the church, therefore let us. Notice the plural here that, Paul, that the writer uses. He uses the word us. He doesn't point at his readers and say you. You. He says, Us. And notice the command here. Let us strive to enter that rest so that we may not fall into the same type of disobedience. The writer of Hebrews' concern for the people who he's writing to is that they would bind themselves together and that they would continually strive, that they would continually fight for, that they would continually aim for remaining in the rest that God has for them. Now, in the context of Hebrews as a whole, that rest is primarily found in Jesus Christ. He is our rest. And the warning here for us is that we strive for that rest so that we can be in that rest, remain in that rest, and not fall into disobedience. Because unbelief, lack of faith, not taking God at His word always leads to disobedience. And so in the next two verses... In verses 12 and 13, the writer gives us a great statement on the sufficiency of the Word of God. In verse 12, notice that the first thing he says about the Word of God is that it is living. That word living means that it's full of vigor. It means that it has... a uh, uh, some activity about it that brings life to you. And it is not only full of vigor, but it is effective in your life. Now, in proper context, the Word of God that he's pointing to here in verse 12 probably is Psalm 95. Because when you go back to chapter 3, you find Psalm 95 being quoted in chapter 3. But In that context, we can extrapolate that and say that if Psalm 95 was good enough for these people that the writer is writing to, then the full counsel of God's word is good for us today because we have the full counsel. And the counsel of God is living. It's active. Notice that he says, he connects the word active to the word living You can't be living and truly be inactive. Even if you're at rest, even if you're laying in bed at night sleeping, there is still activity going on in your body. There has to be some type of activity happening for life to exist. And what he says about the Word of God is it is purpose. The purpose is to do what the writer of Hebrews says, and that is to keep us from the disobedience that Moses' generation and Joshua's generation found themselves in. We are to trust God, believe Him for all that He says to us. It's living. It's active. The second thing that he points to here is that it's sharper than a two edged sword. Now, a two edged sword is a very dangerous weapon because no matter how you swing it, it will cut. No matter how you swing the sword, the two edged sword, it will cut. And so it was known, the the two edged sword was known as the sharpest weapon known to man at that time because they could do damage no matter where they were and what they were doing. Notice what the writer says about this two edged sword, the Word of God. It's sharper than that two edged sword, and it can pierce to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Now, I'm not going to unpack all that for you this morning and and get into the details of that and, and the arguments for and against what that means, except to say this, the soul and the spirit point to the inner man. The joints and the marrow point to the physical man. And so in the inner man and in the physical man, the word of God is enough to cut us and divide us to the very core of who we are. As a matter of fact, it's, it's much like a surgeon carefully cutting to take away that which shouldn't be there to try to help make us healthier. The Word of God cuts us to the core. There's a word here that I think we need to interject. And that is the word conviction. You don't hear much about conviction in churches today. And that's unfortunate. Because conviction is a grace of God upon us to show us and expose to us who we really are. Conviction is showing us how unholy we are compared to a holy God. Conviction is showing us how guilty we are in the presence of a holy God. Conviction shows us how far we have fallen and missed the mark of the glory of God in comparison to His glory. I suspect... That it's this very idea that the Word of God that cuts us to the core. I suspect it's that very idea that keeps many of us from engaging the Word of God. Think about it. None of us like to be told we're wrong. None of us like to be told that we're not as perfect as we thought we were. None of us like to be told that there's some flaws in us. But when the word of God cuts us to the core of who we are, it will expose us for who we are. And I suspect that that is the reason that many of us don't give ourselves to the word of God as regularly and engage it as much as we should because we think that ignorance is bliss. Can I suggest to you that when you stand in judgment day in front of God that you use that excuse and see how far it gets you? Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is a death sentence. Upon you. And then the third thing that we find is that the Word of God exposes our heart. Notice in verse 13 there is no creature that is hidden in His sight. That's God's sight. But all are exposed and naked. And it's to him that we must give account. The best biblical illustration of this, of course, is Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were created. They were brought together. They were living together and doing what God had commanded them to do. They were naked and unashamed until sin entered the world. When sin entered the world, God came looking for them because he's going to hold them accountable just as verse 13 says that we all must give an account. He comes to hold them accountable. He's looking for Adam because he's holding Adam accountable. He calls for them, and what does he find? He finds that they hid themselves, and not only did they hide themselves, but they tried to cover themselves with leaves to cover their own nakedness because now that sin has entered into the world, they understand that they're naked, and yet... None of their efforts fooled a God. They were still exposed by God. They knew, God knew what they had done. He didn't ask them questions for their benefit or for His benefit, He asked them for their benefit. And today, the word of God does the same thing for us that God himself did for Adam and Eve when he went into the garden that day. He called them into account. He exposed them for who they are. The fact of the matter is that even though we're followers of Christ, our hearts can still not be where they should be. Our hearts can still be affected by the sin around us. We can still have desires that are not godly desires. We can still uh, engage and have pleasure in things that bring pleasure, but they're not godly. See, every issue that we face is an issue of the heart, and every issue of the heart has to be confronted with the Word of God. Now, A few days ago, I had a problem with my lawnmower. So I decided I'm going to have to inspect this. I'm going to have to figure out what's wrong with the lawnmower, and I'm going to fix it. So I did what any natural person would do. I went to my car, got in the glove box, and took out my owner's manual to the car so that I could figure out how to fix the lawnmower. Now, you're all looking at me like I'm the stupidest person on earth. You know as well as I do that if you're going to fix the lawnmower, it's not going to be using the owner's manual of the car. If you're going to fix the lawnmower, you're going to have to use the owner's manual of the lawnmower because it was created by the creator of the lawnmower who can tell you the ins and outs of everything about that lawnmower to help you fix it. Why is it then that in the issues of our heart, we run to Dr. Oz, we run to Dr. Phil, we run to Ellen, we run to whoever, you name it, we run to them looking for help in the issues of our heart, how to make our lives better, when in fact the owner of us, the creator of us, has given us the owner's manual that is fit for our lives, and it is here that we find everything we need for life and godliness. Why do we do that? Again, I suspect it's because we don't like what we see. When you get up of a morning, or at least I'll speak for myself, I won't speak for you, but when I get up of a morning and I look in the mirror, I don't like what I see. There's some work has to be done before I step out of the house. God's Word is the mirror, and it exposes you for who you are. So if God's word is powerful, if it does these things for us, then how do we know what it does? And I think that Paul gives us a wonderful list. He's writing to Timothy as a young pastor. He's reminding Timothy that his mission and job is to preach the word and to pastor the people and and listen to what he says. All Scripture, and at that time that would have been the Old Testament, primarily the law and the prophets that they had in their possession, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It's profitable. It helps you. It addresses what it needs to address so that you can take care of and have taken care of whatever the issue is. It's profitable. Now watch this for teaching. Teaching. Why do we need teaching? Because there's things we don't understand and know. I don't know how to live a holy life apart from God's Word, it teaches me how to live a godly life. I don't know how to properly relate to God. Because he is so holy and glorious and is far above all of his creation, we don't know how to relate to a holy God, but through his word, we find out how it teaches us how to relate to God. For that matter, I don't know how to properly relate to you. We have relationship issues. Apart from God's word, we don't know how to relate to one another. It's profitable for teaching. It teaches us these things. It teaches us about God. It teaches us about ourselves. It teaches us about every aspect of this life. And it is good for life and godliness. The second thing he says to to Timothy is it's good for reproof. That is, it's good for testing you. When you take a test in school, you, you take it to prove what you've learned the word of God reproves us it refines us it helps us and then Paul goes on to say and it's good for correction we need corrected every day of our lives if you're a parent grandparent, and or uncle, who's ever had the care of a child under you, you know that there are multiple times a day throughout the week that you are correcting and correcting and correcting your child. Because a child needs that correction. They need to know what is right and wrong. They need to know how to live. And Paul says to Timothy, that's what the Word of God does for us. It corrects us. And it trains us in righteousness righteousness is a relational word how, how what do we do and and is it proper to do how do we relate to the situations of life how do we relate to one another it's a relational word and we have to do what is right and it's through the word of god that paul said to timothy you preach the word because it'll train them in righteousness And in verse 17 of Second Timothy 3, Paul's desire was that the man of God would be complete. It doesn't mean perfect, it means complete. That's why the New Testament tells us that there's everything in the word for life and godliness that you need. Every issue of the heart, it is there. And it equips you for every good work. Can I remind you that your behavior follows your belief? Belief comes first and then behavior. Your biblical doctrine, your Christian doctrine comes first and then your Christian duty. The principles of truth comes first and then your practice of those principles. Who you are inwardly will determine how you live outwardly. So the writer of Hebrews says to us that the word of God is living, it's active, it's more powerful than a two-edged sword, able to cut us to the core of who we are. And Paul basically says in different terms the same thing to Timothy. Teach the word, preach the word, because it's good for these things. So here's the point that I think all of us need to walk away with today. And that is this, that we must submit every thought and intention to the Word of God. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians, who had a real problem with carnality? He said to the Corinthians, you need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought Every intention, the word intention there, you could substitute the word attitudes, desires, motives, whatever word you want to put there for the word intention, it all goes there. The question is, are we regularly, daily submitting ourselves to the word of God? Any issue in life that we have, are we submitting ourselves to the word of God. Thank you once again for downloading today's podcast of the Sunday Sermon. And once again, if you would just be so kind to rate and comment on this podcast, that will help us to become more discoverable in the podcast universe. And until next week, may God bless you. May you have a great week.